Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Owens Corning of New England, helping homeowners create living space using the Owens Corning basement finishing system for over 20 years. More information at ocboston.com. Bridgewater State University is proud to sponsor this conversation from Boston Public Radio. More at bridgew.edu slash gradclass. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan are live at the Boston Public Library and streaming as Marjorie said on youtube.com slash gbhnews. We're about to begin a bifurcated discussion. What I mean by that is we're going to start it briefly now. Then we're going to talk to Corby and John King, and then we will continue that discussion so you all have an opportunity to think about it. Here's the topic, eating alone. How do you feel about eating alone? This is inspired by Peace in the Atlantic, which we're going to discuss with Corby, which is really not about the concept of people deciding to go out and eat alone in a restaurant, in a park, or wherever it is. It's about some other, I think, more serious issues about eating alone. But we want to talk about it as a behavior that some people find to be of great joy, like me, and some people are mortally turned off by, and that would be Marjorie Egan. Our number is 877-301-8970. You can text us, you can call us, you can do whatever you want, and again, we'll continue this at roughly 1.35 or something this afternoon. We've discussed this three or four times through the years. I find it to be an unmitigated joy. You... Are, you well, hate let's, it. Let's Why? Let's differentiate. Are you talking about eating alone in your house? No, that's what this story in the Atlantic eating is about. Eating alone in, in a restaurant. Go to no, or you go to a park and you get a dinner. I you don't, take it out. And I why don't is like that? it. Because, well, eating in a park is one thing. Eating in a restaurant by myself. Why? Because I feel like, you know, something, I feel kind of pathetic. I couldn't find anybody to eat dinner with me. So here I am eating dinner all alone. Maybe you by like myself. solitude. Maybe and I, you I like enjoy solitude. I'm too self confident. Jim, I don't have your confidence to boldly there eat alone. I think it's also because I'm female and not male. Well, don't you think that's changed a little bit? I would argue yes. that that was a lot more Last problematic. Last time we had this discussion, I was chastised by callers who said that, uh, you know, wake up, Marjorie, women in business are out all the time traveling and they're eating alone on a regular basis. Unless they're traveling with Mike Pence, obviously, as we know. And Mike <laughs> Pence right. was so, uh, yeah. vice president. He, is this, am I not right about this? I have to recall that he would never eat alone, eat or, alone or with meet another alone woman. With another woman without his wife being with a mom. Yeah. Mom, he, he calls her. He call he her mother, her I think, actually. It's mother. Think I think he's confused he about that, the mom thing, or no? Well, you know, I mean, Mike Pence may have a point, Jim. I think lots of people are going out to dinner with uh, a colleague, you know, had a couple of drinks, and things did not always end well. You know what I mean? Okay. So, essentially, let me, Marjorie talked about why she's uncomfortable, but I find it to be one of the great moments but, of solitude but, and joy. By the way, you can sit there just looking at other people, watching. Right. If you feel self-conscious, you know what you can do? You can bring a book. Bring a book. You can read people something on your phone. I'm worried about what people are, ta are talking about. That is about what it's about. You're worried yes. about what people will think exactly, of you. Exactly, exactly. I wish I weren't like that way, Jim, but I'll, you know, I'll work on it in therapy. But I was also going to point out that one of these things, and, and you talk about the more serious stuff, you're talking about people with eating problems. Well, that's part of what this but story this, in the But there's also about, yeah. a thing about eating alone uh, in your own home. Either your, uh, your, your kids are grown, or your significant other isn't there, or you're in your house, and people that actually will make a whole dinner, and they'll sit down, and they'll eat their well, you dinner. You don't have a problem with that, do you? No one even knows you're doing it, well, so what's the problem with well, that? Well, I just would never do it. I mean, if I were by myself eating, i just shove the food in my mouth while I was standing up and what do you have, like a peanut something. butter and butter sandwich or I do. something sometimes on white I, bread? Sometimes I worry about, you know, eating too fast, and then, I'm, you know, I will, I will die in my kitchen because I'm eating a peanut butter sandwich. And you know what the Highlight Maneuver doesn't work on? What is? Peanut butter. Is that really true? That's, that's true, Jim. 
Is that why dogs stick their tongue out like 400 <laughs> times? I Let's, don't know. We're but some take... people do do that. What do what? They will have a whole a ritual where they will that. make their dinner by themselves, eat right there. They might even light a candle at the table, have a flower on the table, and do a whole thing where other of us just stand there, don't even sit you down. You know what those people are called, the by the way? In. Do you know the adjective for that? What? Delusional. <laughs> Let's go to uh, John. We're only going to take a few calls now, and again, we'll restart this in the end of the one o'clock hour. John in Providence, you're first. Are you for or against the eating alone experience? I'm definitely for eating alone. Why is that? No question about it. Um, I don't know. There, there have been times where I've been uh, eating dinner, let's say, with somebody, and their eating habits are disgusting. <laughs> That's a That's good one. That's one reason. <laughs> you know, I had a friend who, whose jaw always clicked when he uh, Yeah, can't tolerate that. Yeah. Or, or people that talk with their mouth full or people that eat too well, close so, to the wait plate. Wait a second. So, but wait a second. Or people so, that scrape their teeth across the fork. Okay, fine. So, John, the reason you like eating by yourself you, is not because you like eating by yourself, but because you don't <laughs> like eating with other people. Is that where you're going? I, I think so. You know, I think that's probably dialed it down pretty well. Okay, you're an honest <laughs> man. John, thank you very much for the yeah, call. Yeah, we can do a whole separate, separate, separate segment on bad eating habits. Well, you know who, by the way, who you cannot eat next to if you're in a theater? Who would that be? You may know this person. Jared Bowen? Jared Bowen. Because he's opening candy? No, he does not like. If oh. you go to a play or an event with him, which yeah. I occasionally well, do, he's right and you about have that. as well, he does not like... Rappers. It. Well, if you're having a tuna fish sandwich, that's a problem. Yeah. If you're eating popcorn in a I movie, know, that's a problem. But people make a lot of noise with the rappers. I think that's very upsetting because the rappers make a lot of noise when you open the candy. 877 is the number. Yeah. Well, I want to give it because we're going to be talking about this a little bit later. Can I read a couple of texts before we go to Corby, though? Yeah. I used to hate eating alone. Now I have three small children. I would really enjoy eating alone and actually getting to slow down and enjoy it without anticipating spills and convincing the littles. How that's much right. do you love that expression? The littles to eat the their littles food. Eat their that's food. a good one. Then you have to eat the leftovers of, your, of the littles afterwards. You know what I mean? Especially if it's grilled Here's cheese. another great one. Peter from Wellesley. Best place to eat alone without feeling awkward is a sushi bar, which you, of course, why would not go to. Why is that? I, I, I don't know why I agree with them, but I totally agree with them. But you won't do that because you don't do raw I fish. I don't like so sushi. In any case, we'll continue this discussion in the 1 o'clock hour. John, we agreed to take a break, correct? We're no, going to go. No, I take right that back. We're going right to Corby Commerce, speaking of food. Uh, we are joined now by, yes, we are. We are joined now by the food policy writer, Corby Comer. Corby is the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program in the Aspen Institute, senior at the Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. He joins us on Zoom, I think. We'll find out in a second. Corby, it's nice to see you. Uh, it's nice to be here, and I am joining you by Zoom if it works. Yeah. Yes, you are. Oh, I see you. Hello, Corby. Hi, Corby. There nice he is. Nice to see you. So, Corby Cameron, before we get to uh, your take on eating alone, um, James Beard Award winners. We have some local entries. Um, and who won? Why is this a big deal? Tell us about New England, too. Well, first of all, what's always a big deal with James Beard is you want the people you support locally to win. And they took a two-year pause, the Beard Awards, to include diversity top to bottom and try to remove a lot of uh, favoritism and perceived problems with the previous voting process, most of it diversity. Um, and they had a really interesting list of uh, semifinalists and finalists, 20 uh, semifinalists, five finalists for New England. And Tiffany Faison was on it for a couple of things. Boston wasn't as well represented. There was Somerville's 
Rebel Rebel nominated an outstanding wine program. Uh, Tiffany Faison, um, Best Chef Northeast. The Best Chef Northeast instead went to a Thai restaurant in Randolph, Vermont. Yeah. Three hours of great place in Vermont. Um, and it's a chef named Nisa Sean Morgan, and the restaurant is called Sap, S-A-A-P. And it's it, it sort of classic Thai food, great Vermont beers. And I think that expanding regionally and including diversity and, you know, every kind of uh, category is really great. So I'm really happy about that. And then um, our own Irene Lee from May May, the fabulous food truck and dumplings is now mostly a dumpling business, less of it serving people, had been announced in March as getting a leadership award as a visionary for uh, her work in creating a better food world. And Irene Lee has helped local business owners understand how to get licenses, access to capital, all the things that food entrepreneurs most need to know. She's a national leader. So that was a great award they gave. Irene Lee was with us after she won that. She was the youngest winner ever. Uh, she, the award has gone to people like Michelle Obama before her. And by the way, she did a lot of that great work with a person who should win a leadership award before too long, either Tracy Chang from Pagu, who's done yep. a lot of the same sorts of things. Yep. By the way, I would have picked Tiffany, one of the great restaurateurs and chefs ever. She did lose that person in Vermont. Rebel Rebel in Somerville is terrific. And shouldn't you disclose or you're too humble, you know somebody quite well who won a James Beard Award not too many years ago. Do you not? I know many people have won James Beard. That would Beard be you. Man. That would be you, Corby. <laughs> Corby, you won a damn James Beard Award. Am I not no, right? I won, I won six, but who's Oh, ex excuse, you won six, six James Beard Awards? Wow. Yeah. What? Only well, the well, heavy hitters on keep our talking. show, Jim. So, you know, I used to write a lot. And so um, I would enter myself. People in journalism enter themselves in the awards. Um, it's become, you know, fabulously competitive. And that is fabulous with an emphasis on diversity. And I think that the, the media awards as it happens were already there when two years ago, uh, James Beard pulled the plug on the restaurant awards, said nobody's even open now. It's a great time for us to really take stock and pull back. But the media awards had already been very much going in the direction of more regional diversity, Local Voices, there's a Jonathan Gold Local Voice Award. Uh, he was the great Los Angeles champion of street food. Uh, uh, fabulous, only Pulitzer Prize winning critic. But in any case, media awards are terrific. They're awarded earlier this year and restaurant awards were just awarded Monday night. By the way, for those who are not familiar with this, this is like the Oscars or the Tonys yeah, it is. of the it's food very world. Big deal. So I didn't know you'd won six. That is yeah, really impressive. Yeah, that is really impressive. impressive. And Tiffany Faison is throwing out the first pitch at Tomorrow Fenway. at Fenway Tomorrow. for Pride so Month. So that's pretty cool. And so, here's another thing I have to say yeah. about Tiffany. She is going to get many Beard Awards during her career. I agree. Um, she's always going to be recognized, and she's got a great career. Okay, so let's move from here to the Hudson Valley and the travails of small farmers, family farmers, and others, what is the obstacle they are facing to continue or expand their wonderful work? There are so many obstacles to young farmers who want to get land, and getting land and finding a way to buy it is what has been nearly impossible for, for years and years. So in Western Massachusetts, there's the Carrot Project, which has tried to help um, Farmers get land. There's greenhorns in Upper New York State right across the line. Uh, there's Glenwood, which is quoted in this recent story in the 
New York Times. The New York Times focused on the Hudson River Valley because it's one of the places where property values skyrocketed during the pandemic, 62% rise uh, in housing and property values during the pandemic because so many New Yorkers dream of this beautiful green place to live. Happened in Vermont too that we read a lot. So young farmers who already were extremely challenged being able to afford any of the land, what they've had to do for decades now is rent, but very few options to own or buy. Now it's even worse. And the Times did really terrific reporting around the Hudson River Valley. Valley, And, you know, there are a bunch of rich property owners who say, I'm going to try it out for a year. Why don't you, young person who wants to be a farmer, come and take my land for a year. I'll give you a good rental and I'll see if I like the noise in the <laughs> That's not going to be cost effective for a young farmer. They have to have three to five year timeline before they can figure out whether the equipment they buy, the animals they buy, the prices they're able to charge at farmers markets are able to pay off. And so these owners have no idea that that farms smell and they are noisy and the noise and the smells are not at the discretion of some surf-like tenant farmer <laughs> who can make things beautiful on the weekends for the rich homeowners. It takes its own rhythm and time and farms are, are messy. They're beautiful, but they're messy. So there's this very bad, and I think one of the people called the local farmer's market surfed them with pretty views and nice labels. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how the exodus um, from these big cities, including from Boston during the pandemic, right? But New York, that was supposed to, go on, supposed to just go underwater, hasn't exactly gone underwater. Everybody seems to have come back now, even if they're going to try to get away for the weekends up the Hudson. Right. I sent this article to a friend of mine whose sons have just started a farm in Hudson River Valley and said, you have opinions? He said about five million opinions, but one of them is, they had been tenant farmers in Martha's Vineyard, and they said farming in Martha's Vineyard is everything in this article, but worse and more expensive. And one of the interesting criticisms that I have to follow up is that these nonprofit organizations that are helping young farmers find their matchmaking between property owners yeah. who want tenant farmers and young farmers who want to learn to farm, but they're snapping up land by raising money, and that's also keeping it out of the hands yeah. of young farmers. It's a big problem. So, Corby Cummer, first it was toilet paper, then a bunch of other things, then baby uh, tampons formula. Tampons now. Oh, tampons. tampons. Well, tampons <laughs> and sriracha. Uh, uh, what is the problem exactly with, I guess... The most popular hot sauce in the United States, is that true or is that hyperbole? I think it is. I think it's hyperbole, but during the 2010s, if you might recall, there was a severe shortage of chili peppers. Again, it was nature. There were droughts, um, weather conditions left. Uh, the, the one company, which is He Fong Foods, if I'm pronouncing it right, which is the maker of the famous sriracha sauce. So there, there are a couple of problems here. First of all, that people become too hung up on one brand name of sauce, and they think that's the only good hot sauce. There's plenty of hot sauces out there. But sriracha became, and still is, a cult object. And so when there's any disruption, people think it's the end of the world. The world is no longer safe for hot sauce lovers. It really is safe. Um, there is a California Department of Health uh, shutdown of 30 days uh, also in 2013 when it seemed like the world was going to come to an end. But recently, 
it's a pause production from this one company which can't get chili peppers. Okay, eat something else, but wish well to all the other places that are having problems because of climate change and finding sufficient quantities of the vegetables and crops they need. Here's my guess, uh, considering your insensitivity to the sriracha-deprived sufferers, is you don't like sriracha. Is that a safe assumption? Tell the truth. You know, I'm not at liberty to say, but I <laughs> Okay. We're talking to Corby Kummer, our food guy, and sixth time. Did you know he won six? No, James I did Beard not. Award? I know he's a great writer. Six times. And time I know he's James a great Beard editor. Award. I did not know he had yes, won he six times. We are all humbled by that, Corby Kummer. So um, the Globe has a Rhode Island section, and they have done a lot of writing recently about these great places to go in Rhode Island to have dinner. I was telling Jim, I was just down at a wedding in Rhode Island in Bristol, and every time I go to Rhode Island, which I go to a lot because I have a lot of family that lives there. Almost everything in Rhode Island is on the water. You know, almost everything is on the water. And these restaurants, a lot of them are on the water, and they sound fantastic. Tell us. I have a lot to say about Rhode Island. One of it is um, we didn't talk about how James Beard mostly has favored Portland, Maine for years because it was the hot, national, yuppie, rising artisan food scene, which it still is, and it's great, and I love going to Portland. But Rhode Island is undiscovered and has great restaurants and diners. And that's the next hotspot. I'm predicting it here. And the fantastic Globe reporting, there was a piece by Amanda Milkovitz who went to classic diner after classic diner. And I'm salivating just looking at the pictures of these 1940s and 50s diner. We all know and love the town diner in Watertown. Um, there are diners around Boston that we go to and love just for the retro appeal of it. But the number of them with preserved interiors as well as exteriors in Rhode Island really just floored me looking at the pictures. And the way Jim recently went on a hamburger crawl because he's digestible and he saw a list of 12 and he had to immediately go out and get five. I've decided I have to go on a diner crawl to Rhode Island based on this terrific globe piece. Did you also see, speaking of, this is not Rhode Island, but a corollary piece was that Worcester was the diner manufacturer yeah. capital of America for decades, I didn't apparently. know it. I've heard of the Miss Worcester Diner, but I didn't know that they were building them there for decades. Yep, yep, it, it, and there are, there are survivors in Rhode Island and there are survivors in um, Massachusetts, but I think one of, the, one of the Rhode Island has a plaque saying, the world leader, the Sterling Streamliner, was built 1941 by the J.B. Judkins Company of Merrimack, Mass. Um, that is, when you look at that modern diner, it is fabulous. So Call tell us, so what is the, the, the food critics' take on food in diners generally? I mean, lots of people think it's going to be just kind of, you know, not very good. It's going to be mashed potatoes and meat with lots of gravy. Corned beef hash and yeah, poached eggs. That's, that's right. fabulous. Go ahead, Corby. And pies. I, I think that it is like short order American food, pre-fast food at its finest. Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed by the length of diner menus, pages and pages of stuff coming out from the same tiny kitchen. And it, to me, it's like, you know, clown cars in a Volkswagen. It's how do they get all that stuff out of those tiny kitchens? Yeah. I, I recognize that it's variations on the same themes, that there's not that many ingredients they have to stock. But 
to me, it's, it's always like a magic trick and it's a miracle that all this food can come out. So I'm not there to judge the food. I'm there to have like pancakes or hash browns and mm -hmm. eggs and, or, you know, a griddle grilled corn muffin with butter. There's oh, nothing better in the world. That's great. And that it's a diner specialty. Well, you know, the, I love diners and, but the thing that i love the most, you know, when I go to a diner, couple of swigs of sriracha. And that <laughs> is really- It's irreplaceable, Jim. You know, in all seriousness though, Marjorie asked you about the food. You won't remember this because my memory is bad. Marjorie's is really bad. Very bad. We spend a week in New Hampshire, our, our shows, both of our shows, uh, uh, the week before the presidential primary, every four years. We went to the diner. The diner? We met this woman at the hotel who was a young woman who owned the, is it called the Red Arrow Diner oh, yes. in New Hampshire? The it was Red great. Arrow Diner in great. Manchester yep. that is beyond fabulous. And while the food was really good, it had about the best corned beef hash I mentioned it was this a packed. That Johnny's Diner in Newton has the best corned beef hash good. in America, I would argue. But it's not just the food, it's the feel of a diner. And you, as a, I don't know if I mentioned, six times James Beard Award winner, so obviously you're pretty masterful with the words. There is a feel about a diner that's as important as the food. Am I not right about that? And what is I that think feel? It's genuine Americana and the idea of, you know, nothing will match. Unfortunately, the lunch counters that had the same swivel seats and bottles are now yeah. like, I always think of segregation when yeah. I think of those. But I don't have that. Uh, association with diners. I just have pure love of really greasy plastic coated menus. Another one is Moody's in Waldeboro, Maine, where you get the refrigerator magnets that we always had. Diners are a classic part of the American landscape. Uh, and, and I think their food is, is terrific. Not just hash, but eggs. Yeah, by the way, I got the wrong city. I was close. I had the right state. Red Arrow Diner, thank you to one of my colleagues, is in Nashua, not Manchester. And did you know it's celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, which well, I was that, unaware that, that, of? That, that diner that's been down next to South Station has been there for years and years and is that years, the too. Not I forget what it's called, called, but that's been there, that's been listen, there forever. For anybody listening who's got a spare $135,000, what do you get? You buy one of the classic diners in the Rhode Island piece that's up for sale. Uh, they want somebody to preserve it and uh, take it to the next level of like improving the food and getting staff for it. It's a beauty from, I think, 1947. I think it's the West Side Diner. Um, and you've got, I could be naming it wrong, but if you've got $135,000, pick up that glow piece and go buy a diner. Well, you know what you can do with $135,000? You can either buy that diner or you can buy one-eighth of a parking space on Beacon Hill. <laughs> That's or one quarter know, of an acre in Hudson River Valley farmland. Exactly right. We're talking to Corby Cummer. Did we mention all the other places in Rhode Island no, you that didn't. the Globe talked about too? This was a, a great headline. How to eat through southern Rhode Island in a single weekend. And again, it talked about these places, lots of them on the water, uh, where you can go and have... Uh, you know, wonderful scallops, rolls, seafood crepes, mimosas, and Bloody Marys. Aren't you a huge Southern Rhode Island fan? Well, I, I, I went I been up to Block Island a few times, and uh, the um, Southern Rhode Island has these great towns named uh, Galilee. One of these places is located in Galilee, Georges of Georgia's Galilee, Galilee, where you could see Block Island, and you could take the ferry from there to go to Block Island. So I'm just a big fan of Rhode Island because, as you mentioned before, it is kind of undiscovered. Um, I'm always amazed that people would go to Cape Cod, which is really really crowded now when they can go to Southern Rhode Island, the beaches in Southern Rhode Island. I mean, you, I just drove by the other day, um, 
Roger Williams College, which is on the one side of the Mount Hope Bridge. All the dorms are on the water. You're sitting for four years with these spectacular views of the ocean for miles around. And that's what you get in a lot of Rhode Island, including- I just have to, I have to chime in. I'm amazed that people go to Maine when the landscape along uh, Southern Rhode Island, um, in Wakefield and- Mat Watch Hill. And Westerly. Watch Hill and yep. Jamestown, it's yep. unearthly beautiful, and it's as beautiful or more than anything in um, New Hampshire coast or Maine coast. Yeah, so Narragansett, the, the, the beaches in Narragansett are spectacular. Are we going to name every town in Rhode Island? Well, it's just, no? it's just we should. Squamacan. <laughs> okay, so Corby Cummer, we started a discussion, we're going to continue after John King, about eating alone. Before we, we, it was inspired by a piece in the Atlantic, I think, about. Yeah eating alone for different reasons, which we'll get to in a second. But the first part of this, are you an eating alone out kind of advocate? I am, Marjorie is not. Oh, eating alone at a bar is one of life's most satisfying Amen. occupations. I spent, uh, I just spent, I, I, I was in a lot of Boston restaurants um, over the weekend and the number of people I saw either happily with a book or sitting at a bar alone and looking like there was nothing else they would rather be doing, I found really striking. The, the level of contentment, not artificially looking up as if they have a friend coming, there was none of that. There was, I'm happy to be here by myself. This is a great now, thing That was brilliant, Hold the on. looking for a friend that isn't coming. Well, that that's, is that's what I feel, that I have to that be looking for a friend who's coming and they just have shown up later, they stood me up or something. But I'm surprised you were talking about people looking at books. All I see anybody looking at are their, their phones. phones. Well, I mean, they're not looking at books. They might be reading, reading on. They might be reading, I suppose. But if you were reading, you'd probably be reading on a Kindle, not. Hey, your we're in Boston. Phone. People read books still. Okay. okay. So, Corby, we're going to discuss that aspect of eating alone. The piece in the in the uh, Atlantic, it seemed to me, was pretty much written about the the pandemic when people were forced to eat alone. People having some eating issues. This hashtag, uh, eat with me, which yeah. apparently was huge. Uh, particularly on TikTok, a Korean phenomenon called, I hope I pronounced right, mukbang, which is a combination of eating and broadcast kind of thing. Could you lay out the theme of this Atlantic piece for us? During, during the pandemic, these mukbang, uh, mukbang Korean videos of people eating, just eating a meal, often a, a quite hearty meal, exploded they were all over the internet and for a while they were like the most viewed videos on all of the internet it was a surprising provocative phenomenon but it was also helping the idea of isolation and loneliness during the pandemic and the uh writer an associate editor i don't know named morgan ome at the atlantic wrote a beautiful piece about not just the loneliness and isolation but actual mental health problems yeah. exacerbated by the pandemic among people who had already had eating disorders or on the verge of eating disorders as adolescents, meaning binge eating or not eating. There's something very encouraging and therapeutic about having somebody explain, here's what I'm eating tonight, here's its nutritional content and why it's good, Here's the amount that I should be eating. Come eat with me. I'm going to do it. These work. They're therapeutic. They don't cost anything. And they help people with eating disorders to regularize their eating habits in a really helpful way. It's a tremendously thoughtful article. Uh, 
by this young woman who now is watch, still watching Netflix, reading books and scrolling through TikTok during it. But these eat with me videos really helped her stabilize her own health during the pandemic. Yeah, well, I was looking at some of these Eat With Me videos, and they are kind of fascinating. You had one uh, woman with a big bowl of ramen, a couple of eggs on top of that. Then you had another one with an In-N-Out burger, you know, who was that. talking about the, uh, it, I mean, I don't know if, if, if she was just describing how much she loved the In-N-Out burger with the, the ketchup and everyone should take a big bite of this massive cheeseburger and telling you what's inside it and stuff like that. So, and, and quite elaborate preparations for their Eat With Me videos. So a lot of, um, of my students at the Tufts Freeman School of Nutrition, Science and Policy, thank you, um, are writing about uh, mindful eating and intuitive eating, which are two very fashionable currents right now. They're also controversial, the idea that, that you eat when you want. But fundamental tenets of both are part of this Eat With Me video phenomenon, which is you slow down and you pay attention to what you're eating. You don't just gulp it while doing something else and sort of denying yeah self that you're actually eating, which is part of the binge eating phenomenon, you have the patience and attention to pay attention to it and, and like it. And by force, if you're matching the pace of somebody who's on a video, you are slowing down. And that's going to increase our favorite words to tidy, Jim. And it's just in, in going to increase, just to stabilize a better relationship to food. Well, you know, there's also, we've had this discussion with you in the past, we're out of time, there's the slow food movement, which my older daughter is a part of, by the way, where people consciously eat more slowly, not just for digestive purposes, but for purposes of joy. I want to let you know before you go, because I feel sort of a little outgunned here. Uh -huh. You may have won six Beard Awards. As Marjorie knows, I don't talk about this a lot. I won Most Improved Camper at Camp Anabar, <laughs> not one, but two years That's right. in a row, Corby Cummer. Yeah. You know what Take I think that. your next career is, I, I'm going to put you up for Eat With Me Awards. <laughs> Thank you. Career. Believe me, I'd win every one of them. Hey, Corby Cummer, it's great to see you. Thank you Thanks, as always. Thanks, Corby. Thank you. Uh, we've been speaking with our food man, Corby Cummer, Executive Director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, a senior editor at The Atlantic, and, as you just pointed out to us, Jim, we won't forget it, a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Up next, we're going to talk with John King from the CNN Boiler Room on the January 6th hearings, the cancellation of tomorrow's hearing, the bipartisan gun possible deal, and much more. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. Thank you.